0: join with me by turning to the book of Exodus chapter 2 for our sermon today. Exodus chapter 2 would that we might know more of Christ today for having been together. Exodus 2 doesn't waste any words. It's a literary masterpiece, really. Every single word, and I hope to show this to you as we dissect it and apply it this morning, has meaning. It's, it's written beautifully. Michael Morales wrote a theology on Exodus where, he described the second chapter of Exodus as a movie trailer, showing you snippets of what would happen throughout the rest of Exodus. You might think of it as uh, at the top of the hour news, showing you little snippets of what they're going to expound upon throughout the rest of the newscast. Or you you might think of it as um, if, you, if you watch old sitcoms, sometimes they would say, tonight on such and such show, you're going to see blank, blank, and blank. And for about a minute and a half. I'll give you little snippets of what's going to happen. That's a pretty good idea. What's going on in Exodus chapter two? It's giving you a, um, a kind of panoramic view, but not every little detail of what's going to happen throughout the book of Exodus, and for that matter, throughout the life of Moses. Uh, really, throughout the entire literary work of the Pentateuch: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses is the divinely inspired author of Exodus having at least considered the precepts of Genesis, if not written it, by the time of writing Exodus. Moses is now delicately writing about his own life. That's a delicate thing to do if you think about it. You're going to write about your own life. Even though he is divinely inspired, he's also trained and skilled to write such a masterpiece. Moses' parents and sister kept the faith alive before there was a written Bible. So if you you look at what you got today as a written Bible, even the first five books, or consider the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, that Jesus would have had, the, the entire Bible was not committed to writing. It was written word, scripture to word, it was committed to oral sharing. And so his parents and then his older sister uh, very likely would have shared that faith uh, with Moses at a very young age. Pharaoh's daughter, in a twist of irony, saved baby Moses from death in the Nile River, if you follow the dating we've been using, you might write down the date, 1526 B.C., for that baby-saving instance. In fact, if you have a scripture journal, I'm going to give you a lot of things you might write down in circle. If you write notes in a journal or in your Bible, there's going to be a few things in the next five to seven minutes. I just tell you, you might want to write down uh, as an encouragement to your overall study of the book of Exodus, since this is a snippet or a, a panoramic view, a movie trailer, so to speak. So 1526 B.C., If you date the Exodus in 1446 B.C., here is Moses, the younger, put into the Nile River. Moses, of course, rescued, we're going to read about, gets an Egyptian education, but a Hebrew religion. By the time he's 40 years old, so about 1486 B.C., Moses identifies himself as a Hebrew. He sees himself as a Hebrew, not as an Egyptian, but his first attempts to save Israel fail, and he retreats to the wilderness at Midian. And I've titled this sermon Failing Forward because of that theme in the middle of this text Failing Forward, Exodus 2 1 to 25. While he's in Midian, he delivers Ruel or Jethro's daughters, particularly one of them, Zipporah, which would become his wife. Together they had a child named Gershom, which means sojourner, which further identifies Moses' own pilgrimage. The situation back in Egypt was not lost on God while Moses was in Midian for 40 years shepherding and raising a family. And as the prayers cried out, God heard, just as he'd heard baby Moses' Christ from the Nile River 80 years earlier. And with Moses now ready, God was ready to send his army of one back, and that'd be the end of the trailer. And now you'd be ready to enter into Exodus 3 and following, which will zero in on a year or two. So... In the due time, you will get more of the book, as it is our habit to walk through consecutive exposition in the Bible. But for today, we stop there because Exodus 2 stops right there. And just before we read the text, I'm going to try to try to kind of tell you with a snippet um, or a, a narration, which is really what I just gave you and it's really what Exodus 2 is for the book of Exodus. This will to give you a snippet of, of why this might be relevant to you. Uh, I, I think that we tend to think that God sort of in a generic way, hears us, and sort of in a generic way, uses us. But I think very often, we, in our shame, in our having been accused in our conscience, maybe maybe even by the comments of others through our life experience, we tend to accept our wounded status, and we tend to, to shirk back from doing things for the Lord because of prior failures. And what I hope today's text will help me and you to do is to acknowledge where we have been unfaithful in the past, or at least unwise. And at the same time, as we accept that failure, by the blood of Jesus, we'll stare the accusation of the enemy right in the face and fail forward into greater works and ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that track? And we can maybe see and sense our uh, engagement with the text around that. And I believe that you have the spirit too. I don't know how the Lord will choose to apply the sermon today to you. I'm just saying this is one way that you might uh, might think about it. I've determined that inactivity may be uh, pride cloaked in shame. We're too proud to to actually face what we've what we've done that's got us accused and shameful, and so it's just more simple to sort of waddle in our own. And our own shame than it is to face it down, maybe in biblical counseling or with trusted friends in the church. But I think humility stares down the shame and accusation, and looks to the blood. And so I think I think Exodus two can help us uh, with with that. So so let's look at the text now. And for you that are are looking at this with a scripture journal open or a Bible open that you take notes in, Addison can give you a nod on a thing or two here. Think 5, 6, 7, 8. 5, 6, 7, 8. I think it's an easy way to kind of think about the text. That's not my sermon points. It's just trying to get your head around this literary masterpiece. Think 5, 6, 7, 8. Five, God. There's five times God's mentioned in the last three verses. You're going to notice that. Six questions. You're going to see a question in verse 7, 13, 14, 18, and twice in verse 20. So there's six questions in this masterpiece. There's seven saws or sees or looked, see, 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 I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. Seven times you're going to see that word. In fact, I think if you're going to highlight or circle just one of these indicators of the flow of a text, I think C is probably it because it runs top to tail in the text and gives you a lot of clues. But not to be outdone, eight times in the first ten verses minimum, that's a rough count, eight times minimum, you'll see the word child. And particularly, you're going to see in verse 6, Child symmetrically separates the Hebrew word count as a focus when she saw the child. She took pity on him. So there's something about the messaging of a child that's coming on in the first, what will become the first section or the first point of this text. Now before we read it, it's probably helpful if I don't just go 5, six, seven, eight with God and questions and, and saw and, and child. It's probably helpful if I tell you what I'm thinking should be the flow of the sermon from the start as far as, as points. So I'll do that although I hold on loosely, I wanted to make them as simple as I could because of the overall complexity of these 25 verses in chapter 2. So I'm just going to make them very simple. Um, Moms look to Christ. Dads look to Christ. And Christ looks at us. So if you want to just kind of think about the three segments, we'll say the first 10 verses, verses 1 to 10, moms look to Christ. And then verses 11 all the way down through 22, Dads look to Christ, and in the last three verses, 23 to 25, uh, Christ looks at us. And so I think from the start now, you're going to be thinking to yourself now, how in the world can you talk about Christ? There's real astute observers in here that are thinking, this is Exodus chapter 2. This is the 15th century, 16th century BC. How can you be talking about Christ? I'll answer that question right after we read the text, because I think I have absolute license to do that. But I'm gonna tell you how I'm gonna show my my work like a math problem because I think it'll help us if we do that. But I'm first just straight away now, without any further comment, hoping you'll look for these key indicators of God and saw and, and questions and, and child and hoping you're interacting with the text. I'm just gonna read it straight out, and I'll explain my work and we'll work those three points about moms and dads and Christ looking at us. Okay? So here we go. Exodus chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a child, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sisters stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? question mark. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest, the priest of Midian, had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, "How is it that you've come home so soon today?" They said an Egyptian deliverer delivered us rather out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock." He said to his seven daughters, "Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread." And Moses was content. To dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, "I have been a sojourner in a foreign land." Verse twenty-three. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for God, cried out for help. Their cry, cry for rescue from slavery, came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. May God bless the reading of his word, minister grace unto all who hear. So in verses 1 to 10, we see Moses' young life, like even zero to maybe eight or ten years old when he entered Pharaoh's court. We, we see in verses 1 to 10, his mom and also his older sister, really, a maternal figure in his life, was looking to the Lord, and I'm saying looking to Christ on purpose. And it at encouragement for us, for you mothers, to look to Christ and your most difficult and dark troubles, those of you that might one day be mothers and those of you that are mothers, those of you that have mothers. I think all women, there's quite a statement there. And then in verse 11, we pick up with Moses at 40 years old, deciding to identify as a Hebrew instead of an Egyptian. And he has to look to Christ because he does the right thing the wrong way and he winds up having his own little mini exodus and running away from the very people that he's supposed to deliver and, and they don't accept him and there's this kinds of drama within this narrative. And then finally we have Moses at 80 years old. We find that in another place in the book uh, as we come to the end of his time in Midian because at, at 80 he's going to be called back with the last third of his life, 80 to 120 years old, to do his, his most Important and, and memorable work, which would be uh, really just kind of teased a little bit in verses 23, 24, and 25, where God and not Moses is the center of the conversation. Anyway, so let, let's look at the first part. But, but before we do, it, I sort of kind of tell you how I'm getting to this Christ thing. Before we talk about mamas and applications, and I'll be as brief as I can with those three points, I just want to share Hebrews does a lot of heavy lifting for us. In fact, you may remember it from the service leader reading earlier. If you read in Hebrews chapter eleven, verses twenty-three through twenty-six, and I have it here, I noted it from the service leader sheet. It says, uh, Hebrews eleven twenty-three: By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So that's a statement of faith that they, the reason they hid Moses was they were they they were fearing God over over a king. And they, were, they, were, they saw that the child was beautiful, or it was a fine child, perhaps a child of promise. And then it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So it, it says that Moses, the interpretation by the divine author of Hebrews, says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ. And that's how we get to Christ. Of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. I hope that you'll be looking to Christ too today as we're thinking about applications from Exodus 2. It's interesting to me, really, a, f- a favorite passage of Scripture in the Bible comes right after that hall of faith in Hebrews 11 I just read from where, where they, they comment that Moses was looking to Christ, he was looking to the Christ child, then right after that whole hall of faith with with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, etc., you get to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and many of you know it, right? You're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. But what's the actual admonition to us based on the witness of church history and of centuries prior? The admonition to us is to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What's the application of all that wonderful, rich theological history? Look to Jesus. What was Moses doing? Looking to Christ. He was looking to Christ. Now, he may not have had as much information as we have, although I think he had quite a bit. may not have as much information as we have now, but nevertheless, looking to Christ. And so you might say, okay, all right, so I get that you're looking to Christ, and you're calling these, these women were looking to the Christ child then, and you're saying that, and I get that, but what, how do you even get there? You actually have to go from Hebrews then all the way back to Genesis and look at Genesis and see the gospel promise first iterated in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve, our first parents, had made such a mess and disobeyed God, God issues a gospel promise in the midst of the curses that He's doling out for the sins of man. And, and the, the promise is that, man, your work's going to be really frustrated because you've rebelled against me. You're getting expelled from Eden. But you'll still be able to work. And woman, you're childbearing. It's going to be really frustrated. It's going to be painful. But you're still going to be able to bear children. And by the way, uh, serpent, you're going to crawl around all over the earth and your comeuppance is coming for this mess that you've caused. And I just want you to know that one day, a child from this woman that you deceived is going to crush your little old head. He's going to defeat you. He's going to strike you. Read Genesis 3.15 that way. Because I can't do a sermon on Genesis 3. But that's what's being conveyed. And I think, I think, that the faithful amongst 16th and 15th century Hebrew people, even, even without a written word yet, which you ought to thank God for the word of God today, really. Like, you should really thank Him. This is a masterpiece. A, there's not a wasted drip of a word in this faucet of the Bible. Not a word. I mean, it is as steward as it can be. It's a thousand pages or so. It's not case law. It could be tens of thousands of pages. This is not the heavenly archives. It is the storybook for your life. It's what it's for. It's for you. Jesus told parables. He could communicate more with parables well-timed than he could a lot of other stuff because we're too thick. We could revisit them and figure out how to apply them. This is beautiful. And I think what they had instead, I know they didn't have written word at that point, but I think what's going on with the people in the original context of Exodus, the timing of Exodus, I think that people, like Moses' parents, where in another place or two in the Old Testament, we find their names are Amram and Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed. They're mentioned in Exodus 6, as well as Chronicles and Numbers. And we find that Amram actually lived to be 137 years old. He lived a long life. But Jochebed and Amram had at least three children, this youngest one Moses, and two others. They had Miriam, which was the oldest of those three, and Aaron in the middle. You're going to hear a whole lot more about Miriam and Aaron as well as Moses. But what I think they knew is what all of faithful Israel knew at that time. The oral tradition of, hey, God created everything in six days and then he rested. And our first parents had absolute communion with God, but they sinned. But God promised that one day somewhere in this story that He was going to crush the head of the serpent and He was going to do it through an offspring of our first mother. He's going to do it through an offspring of Eve. Like, it's going to happen. She's going to have a son, a child. It's going to be a beautiful child. And that son is going to crush the head of the serpent and we are going to live because of it. It's going to look like we're going to die all the way through here. We're going to be in coffins or arcs or baskets of death but we're going to live because of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to reverse the deception and deceive and throttle the seed of the serpent, and the serpent is going to lose. That's why he's so mad, and that's why he's lashing out. You see things like this in terms of striking and crushing in Romans chapter 16, and you see things like this in terms of accusation and the serpent flailing and fighting, in the language of Revelation, like in chapter 12. So I think that's what's going on. And so these moms knew about this promise, and they they probably knew about Miriam's probably being taught about uh, Abraham, and the promise to Abraham after what you consider after all the sin that went on after Noah. So the covenant with Noah and and Abraham, and you consider Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, those are explicitly mentioned in the text of Exodus 1 and 2 and in the midst of, 400 years of absolute tyranny at the hands of the Egyptians that once liked Jacob's son Joseph, now they are really being terrorized. I mean, they're super terrorized. They're not even able to keep their own children. They're having to hide babies or just outright throw them into the Nile for the crocodiles. And assuredly, in the midst of all this, it would have been easy to lose hope. And I'm sure that there were plenty of Hebrews that didn't act very Hebrew-esque in the midst of this time. But not the Levite family, not the Levite family of Amram and Jochebed, not them. For all of their failings, not Miriam, apparently not Aaron, and certainly not Moses, these people believed the promise of the gospel. And so they were looking to the Christ child. I believe that, and you should too. One of the evidences of that, I think, is found in the way that the child is talked about. In Exodus two one to ten, let's just take a quick gander at it. Just a quick look at Exodus two, one to ten. It's it's worth looking at in a little bit more detail. If you look at um, verse two, she after she conceived a son, she saw that it was a fine child. And in the New Testament, she's credited with seeing this as a child of beauty or a beautiful child. I think. Whether she thought this was the Messiah or she knew that the Messiah would one day come, I think that Jochebed understood that the child would come and they needed to keep hope alive. Didn't know if there'd be a written scripture exactly. May didn't understand everything that would happen, but saw it was a fine child. And she worked so hard to save this child. I'm sure she, she probably wasn't the only mom that tried to save her child. I don't mean to advocate that. But God saw fit in the midst of this carnage to save this child. And she saved this child, if you look at verse 3, by putting him in a basket. The other place that this word is used in the Hebrew Scripture, in the Pentateuch, is in Genesis. It's the same Hebrew word for ark. So whether you call it a basket or an ark, this is a a, a small wooden replica of an ark, form-fitted to size and waterproof to save a baby, instead of eight people and a bunch of animals. It's a symbol of salvation. And when she makes this basket or this ark and she waterproofs it, she sets it down next to the reeds. Same word used to describe the sea that the Hebrew people would have parted for them that would become a death trap for the Egyptians that were chasing them down. The, the, the imagery is clear. From death to life. In fact, the Hebrew word for basket and ark is to describe a coffin or a chest you would put a dead person in. Moses was left for dead, but what did God do with this fine child? He yeah, kept him alive. So there's something being imagined here for us, being illustrated here for us, as Moses looks back at his own life being spared and tries to understand it in the ark of the story of God as he was sat inside of an ark or a basket. This beautiful child, this fine child is described. If you look in Exodus chapter 2, verse 5, it says that she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it and she opened it and she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And thank God she took pity on it. Surely a divinely inspired emotion. This is one of the Hebrew children. And then with such boldness, Moses' sister says to royal Pharaoh's daughter, Miriam says, a question, a well-timed question. Shall I go and call a a wet nurse from the Hebrew women? You want me to do that? To nurse this child for you? And it seems like a good arrangement. So she gives some some directives. Go, take. And so Moses' biological mother Winds up getting paid to care for her child that was left for dead. And I can only imagine that she taught him. You know, the hand that rocks the cradle, you know, right, rules the world. So he whispered to him. Maybe told him about that promise. Where does Moses get all of this? Religious education. He certainly got an Egyptian education. It would have been first class, and he apparently was a wonderful student. Language, linguistics, hieroglyphics, geometry, the best that math could offer, the art of war, the code of Hammurabi. He would have studied widely in the Egyptian court. And God would certainly use all of that. I mean, what a literary masterpiece that you hold in your hands if you hold a Bible. And you read Exodus; it is the the expanse. We can't even get into the depths. It's a, the, the the imagery of it all and the flow of it. All, it is just a, a beautiful God-inspired book from a brilliant man that God preserved and developed. But it it didn't always look that way. And the simple first point that I want to make is the role of these maternal figures of these women in the young religious training. The young of the young life of Moses as a fine boy, as a little child. He had to be taught something. He had to get it somewhere. And I just simply want to encourage every female in this room today that your lot in life is, though assaulted by a satanically induced culture, essential. It's essential. What you do in bearing children, whatever else you do, praise God for everything else you do, but whatever you do in bearing children has a direct connection and lineage to a promise that is ancient. And that is that this is the mechanism by which we're going to conquer the enemy. Now, your child is not Jesus. That was Mary's child. But every child that utters the name of Christ and looks to Him points toward or back at the sure and certain promises of the Christ child. It points at the gospel. That's what that, that child does. What you do to teach, you say, you might protest well, I'm, I'm, you don't know where I've been, Pastor Matt. I don't know where Jochebed's been either. You don't, you, you don't know where I've been. I, I don't know where you've been. But here's what I know. If you have faith in Christ, you now have an, not just an obligation, but an opportunity to tell these stories to your kids and your grandkids. You know how Timothy knew the faith? The Apostle Paul had no problem using this as leverage in his life. Hey, you remember how your grandma and grandma taught you the faith? shaped your conscience for salvation, made you wise for salvation. you remember that? That's good. Now you go and live that out. In the economy of the apostles' understanding of spiritual things, that, wasn't, that, was, that, was, that was an important thing. It wasn't something that was shunned. We need to put the accent mark of our lives where God puts the accent mark of our lives. These women did amazing work in the life of Moses. I mean, it was God's work through them, no doubt. But what courage? You think this is just for, for chi- women of childbearing years. What about eight-year-old Miriam? How, how many of you in here would be closer to eight than 28 or 38? I want to talk to the young ladies for just a second. Miriam was shrewd, well-taught, bold, courageous, and she issues a question to a, a daughter of Pharaoh that could have gotten her back slapped or worse. And she does not take the easy way out. She doesn't just go back home to mom and say, "Mom, well, they, that, the baby, they didn't. Nothing happened." No, she stood for Christ's child. She stood for promise. She stood for life. Praise God for that. Unashamedly, young people standing for the gospel promise, speaking toward the gospel promise, and these young ladies had a job to do. Perhaps more than that, but not less than that. The whole sermon could take the first 10 verses, but it won't. Suffice to say, let's just end with verse 10 with a recap. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Don't know exactly what age that was. And Moses became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And that is a preview for all sorts of things, to be sure. Within this own text, Moses will wind up drawing out water for his father-in-law's household, for for the sheep, but also being drawn out of water, God's people will be drawn out of water in the Red Sea whenever they exit from Egypt and are delivered or rescued, which is rescue is such a strong theme in Exodus and certainly in this trailer, movie trailer that is chapter two. Now, let's think about the masculine for a moment or two. Think about the gentleman, particularly through the eyes of Moses, but not just Moses. Use your imagination and use your literary skills. Look look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he's 40 years old now, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He identified with them, didn't he? I just want to pause right there in verse 11 and just Question, does anybody notice to ask you? It seems like a good time to ask it. Do you identify with God's people? Very simple question. Well, of course, Pastor Matt, I'm here, right? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. No, 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 no. I'm saying, do you identify with God's people? Well, I mean, of course I do. I've been, I've been around it. If not raised in it, I've at least been here. And, uh, that's not what I'm talking about either. Do you actually have investment in the people? Are are you willing to walk with the people? Do you consider yourself a part of, or even a member with the people? Are you a Monday morning critic of the people? Are you in the Sunday game with the people? And our Sunday game is the Lord's Day anyway, so it's the church. It's worship. Are you a part of the body of Christ? Do you identify with the people? Because it's a whole lot simpler to have some loose affiliation than it is to invest and consider yourself a part of the family. What happened in Moses' life, I know, because it says so. Exactly when it happened, I'm not sure. For how long has Moses identified with the people of God instead of these wicked Egyptians that were anti-God, following the seed of the serpent through Pharaoh to kill babies and tyrannize day laborers, and rob them of their wages, he gave no thought to the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. I don't know. But here's what I do know. This man identified with God's people. And he's praised for it in the New Testament. We should be thankful for it too. Men, identify with God's people. It is one of the most important identifications that you will ever make in life. It is more important than identifying a career path. It's more important than identifying what vehicle you want to purchase or where you want to live, identifying with God's people is way, 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 way high on the list. Really high. And you know how one way that you know that you've identified with God's people, not, not just in, in overtures, but actually internally, is you identify with their burdens. And it costs you something. And, and sometimes as you identify with God's people, you, you will make mistakes trying to do the right thing. As one author put it, you might do the right thing the wrong way. But I'm not going to shoot the guy that's in the arena doing something. I mean, we need more men to invest themselves in the people of God. I think that's what happens with Moses here. He invests. And it says when he grew up, he went out and he looked on their burdens. Verse 11, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Again, identifying with him. And he looked this way and that. So he, 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 he's thinking about whether or not returning an eye for an eye is the right idea here. He looked this way and that, and he didn't see anyone. So he struck the Egyptian and probably stopped him from murdering the Hebrew or killing the Hebrew, but instead he kills, or murdering the Hebrew, but instead he kills the Egyptian. Probably he could have made a case in court for what he did, I don't know. But he hit him in the sand And then the story immediately goes to, without litigating that, when he went out the next day, two Hebrews were struggling together. Now, this is really illustrative for us. Two of God's people, supposed to be people of God, set to be delivered with a promised exodus one day, should have been taught, by their mom is the Christ child promise. They're striking each other. They're fighting. I think of the New Testament you know, in Galatians where it says, Apostle Paul warns the church at Galatia, a young church in the AD 50s. That he says, stop biting at one another. Or you might eat each other. Like, quit nipping and tucking at each other. Don't you know your brothers and sisters? Like, did Christ not die to make you a family? I think that, I think that we need to be reminded today we not only are to identify with the people of God and have investment in the people of God, also we need to refrain from forever striking out as if our fellow church members are people to be conquered instead of people to collaborate with. These, these are your people. And they're your people now, but they're your people forever. I mean... The people of God are the people of God forever. Jesus came to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and tongue, from every place. But in this place, here's God's people called out to worship. Let's, Let's not hit each other. And when we do have struggles, let's work through them. And let's strive, as the Apostle Paul said in another place, let's strive with one another for the truth of the gospel. Let's strive forward with the truth of the gospel instead of seeking to take our vengeance and our concern out on our brothers and sisters. Moses thinks he can reason with these two. He finds that he can't at this time. And so what happens is they, 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 he said to the man that was in the wrong, why do you strike your companion, verse 13? And he answered, instead of answering the question, he, he diverts and he asks a different question. Who made you a prince and judge over us? Instead of just accepting Moses' leadership and his ability, which he clearly would have had, I mean, he clearly had ability, at that time as a young and stronger man. He says, who made you judge over us? Well, we know what God did, but that still hadn't hadn't come out yet, the full fruition. And then he really sets a trap for Moses. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Boy, he resides with that comment, his people to 40 more years of Egyptian tyranny. I mean, I just wonder to myself, I wonder to myself in how we handle differences. I wonder if when we we use specious arguments and we divert from real conversations and we try to get top cover and when we do all that sort of stuff, I wonder what blessing of God that we delay because of our obstinance. This body politic, this thing that we've got is so much more important than the politics of this age. It's so much more important than international affairs and domestic issues. Because the only way we ever really have an impact on domestic issues and international affairs is as we lock arms with our brothers and sisters and be the body of Christ right where we are. The corporate witness of a church is essential to the church's mission. But that's too small for us, right? We just kind of want to shake our heads at it. Criticize it. I'm sure I'll say some phrase wrong. I'll use the, use the wrong conjunction or the wrong article today or I'll, I'll cite a verse wrong and somebody will sing a lyric wrong and something will happen with a thing on the screen and somebody will do something on the way out. And what in the world does any of that matter? We're here to know more of Christ. Like I, I, wanted, I don't want to remove as many distractions from you as I can, but if you're the distraction, I can't remove it. Like, we were at the men's breakfast yesterday talking about this. You cannot be the body of Christ without the body of Christ. Like, requisite, like, God's gifted the whole body. You can't be the body of Christ without being a part of the body of Christ. Like, it's the way the giftings work. And the project is completely delayed, at least in human terms, because this really, really smart guy's got one on Moses. I don't know what you did, and I'm not following you. Nana, nana, boo, boo. So Moses, he takes off. In fact, it's just described in Exodus terms. If you, if you look at um, verse uh, C, Moses was afraid, verse 14b. And he thought, surely this has to be known. So verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, it says that he did seek to kill Moses. So Moses knew that. But what happened is Moses got out ahead of him. He could have gotten past all the guards because of his royal uh, descent, his, his royal family. They wouldn't have questioned him as he went past all the gates. And instead of going to the fortified cities, he goes down south. And he takes the path toward a not-real-desirable land, a path where he'll find some kind of ancient family members from Abraham through Keturah. But he, the, the operative thing here is he, he, he exits the people that he's supposed to identify with and rescue. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's worth a brief comment uh, that Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Minion, and he sat down by the well it's it's worth brief comment to say that the well that Moses sat down by or sitting down by a well throws our minds back into how the patriarchs found their wives by a well, and there's these connections in the story in in these patriarchs that flows through with Moses, but it never does the story of Moses usurp the story of Abraham. These promises to Abraham are foundational and primary. And when he gets to Midian, there's much to talk about. In fact, he gets a totally different reception in Midian. And when he gets to Midian, he discusses with his priestly father-in-law, I'm imagining spiritual things. The story of salvation. It's looking to Christ. So if in the first 10 verses, if we saw these Faithful females looking to Christ and telling the story to the kids and living for Christ in the midst of terrible circumstances. Then in the second batch of verses, in verses 11 through 22, we find this man and other men that should have, perhaps didn't, and then now another man that we think does, Midian and Jethro, identifying with the promised rescue child, looking to Christ and talking about looking to Christ. And I can only imagine how many ideas were fermented in the mind of Moses in the heart of Moses during the relative solitude of shepherding down south at midian i mean can you imagine think about moses being down there having been on the run he gets to this this well and he basically has to kind of he kind of has to put some men down there in their place for mistreating the ladies and he runs them off and he takes care of the ladies and The ladies go back home and dad says, Why didn't you bring this guy here? Like, why did you leave that guy out there? Get him that could be your husband. Get him in here, you know. Go get that guy. So like, hey, would you wanna come get some bread? You know, like your daily bread that we give us? Come on, come get some food. So they come home and they eat and you know the relationship flourishes. But I can imagine for Moses it was it was kind of bittersweet, probably. I mean, he thought he had this this identifying factor and this call and he's strong and he's 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 in the prime of his life and you know, and, and then he goes down south and he, he gets he gets married and he's he's subservient to his father in law. He he shepherds sheep. He's a a gentle and lowly shepherd. I think there's a couple of themes here that, that come out kind of at the end of this second batch of verses. It's really, really fascinating. One, we've we've said is he's a shepherd. And we all know that the Lord is our shepherd. Shall not want. Skill for those that would, requisite skill for those that would lead God's people. But, but what else happened? We have these, this imagery of striking, not the head of the serpent, but the head of the other Hebrew, right? I mean, we've got this striking imagery in the top half of this section. And what would one day happen is there would be a death blow delivered to the serpent through the seed of the woman. So they're not focused on the gospel project of pushing back against the wicked. They're fighting each other, and that's part of the imagery that I think is being conveyed. And as I was thinking about this in community and thinking about this text and as part of his text, I was thinking that it take, God has to ready a leader for the people, but He also has to ready a people for a leader. Like Moses wasn't ready to lead this exodus based on the means that he uses. He's going to use this. Instead of words in this, and the people aren't ready for a deliverer as magnificent and well trained and strong as Moses to lead them. They're just not ready, and God orchestrates things in a way in His providence by which He 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 breaks us before He takes us. He 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 He, he, he humbles us before He uses us, and. This seems to be a theme throughout the Bible that enables God's people to to identify with His people, with Him and with His people, but to have bumps in the road along the way and to be used sort of at an older age. Not that God didn't use Moses throughout. He certainly did. I mean, these seven daughters are glad that they were able to get home quicker. She was using Moses all along. But perhaps His best work was saved for the end of His life. Now, there's all kinds of applications you might make with what I just said, trying to, trying to elucidate. Let me just draw out just, just a little bit. Um, don't, look, don't think that because you've had these rough spots as a person of faith that God's not using you at, in the last third of your life. Like, don't think that way. That's not biblical. And also, don't think that everything else that you're doing, young people, is unimportant either. The whole thing's important. God's getting things where he's taking it. Look to Christ, not to yourself, for how this whole project's going to get done, and stop the infighting. Identify with God's people, but love on God's people too. Figure it out some way. But I, I think also when you, when you think about Moses and 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 late in life, there's there's another operative piece here. He has a son, and he's a sojourner, and there's a lot going on here. But he's content. And he's not sure that he really wants to do anything else. And he's sort of, a, at this point, a humble, reluctant participant. You're going to see these in the week, this in the weeks ahead. And Moses is just not sure he has the energy to go do that. He's very reluctant. This is not young, I'm going to get the glory, and God will get a Kind of Moses. This is, this is older, seasoned. God, if it has to be me, I'll do it. But at least send my brother to talk, because I don't want to talk. And, you know, and give me the staff, and we'll show you what this looks like. And there's other stuff that's going to come out. But Moses is going to be a reluctant participant in the exodus. I think there's something to that. Um, men, the sooner that your pride is crucified, you lay at the foot of the cross, the more use you're going to be for the Christ that you've claimed. He's just not interested in your hobby horse. He's just not interested in your smarts. He's just not interested in your ability to be cute and cavalier, coy and clever. He just is not interested. And I can tell you that though I am still on the journey, I can tell you unequivocally that I've been closer to God since he's humbled me than before. And I'll be closer to God when he humbles me still. That's a message that young men need to hear. Because you're not going to beat your way out of this thing. You're going to serve your way into this thing. And God will always reserve the greatest glory for himself. He's not going to give it to man. He's not. Moses doesn't even get to enter the promised land. With all of his foils, he, he, he doesn't make it. I mean, he makes it, he gets to see it. We know that from the Mount of Transfiguration because Moses and Elijah get a front row seat for it, but, but not in this life. That's called a death. It's a great irony, really, because Moses is put in a death trap and saved only to die in order to save God's people. Where have we heard that one before? Like, where have we heard that story before? Anybody? You know, right? Look, look at the last verses. It really frames it up well. Because we need to we need to look, stop looking so much to ourselves. And what is needed is, is a Godward gaze, looking to Christ. Males, females, young, old. And here, here's what it says. During those days, many days, many days. So it's 40 to 80 years old, we know from another place. That Pharaoh died. People of God groaned because of their slavery, and they they cried out. Kind of like the baby cried out from the basket. So the people cried out, and they're crying. They're they're put in a basket and marched through the seas. What's going to happen? Their cry for rescue from slavery, it came up to God. God. God heard, using human language to describe here, so we can understand. God heard with ears their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So he, he saw, he heard, he knew. But that, that word remembered is, is pretty helpful for those of us that are failing forward in the mission of God for our lives through his people, the church. That word remembered is used to describe the water receding and Noah living in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Same Hebrew word. God remembered Noah. And God remembered his covenant with the patriarchs here on behalf of Moses and the people that he would lead. And God remembered it. And it indicates not that God is forgetful, not at all. It means, this word remember means the time has come. It means now is the time for deliverance. I'm going to do it now. You would have thought a different time. This is the time I'm going to do it now. I don't know why this was the time, for sure. I don't mean to indicate that I do. But I want to to give you a clue, just a clue as we wind this thing down. These people were collectively crying out. Not just crying like a baby, but crying out like a child to God. God, please. It's been 400 years since Joseph was a thing. Please. Please save us. Isn't that how we have to come to God? Please save us. Please save us. Please save us. us. If that's a right inference from this, then... That's a nice way to to bring this thing home. I do want you to notice again the prolificness of God in this deliverance saga. He's not been mentioned since chapter 1, verse 20 and all the tumult and turmoil. And I want you to see how he's so prolific in the end of 23 through the end of the chapter. It says that came up to God, Elohim, creator God. And verse 24, God heard their groaning. And then the third mentioning, God remembered. And then the fourth mentioning, God saw. So the theme of seeing comes before God here as God sees his people, and God knew. This text really reminds us pretty fully of a text from the New Testament. I think I'll share it with you. 1446 years later or so, Christ was born and he fled Bethlehem for Egypt. Listen to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 21. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Light bulbs starting, you know, things starting to flicker in your head, fireworks like the 4th of July, like started, oh my goodness, he's going to flee to Egypt. What's being communicated here in the gospel? Remain there until I tell you. For a different king, not Pharaoh, but Herod, of a different empire, not Egypt, but Rome, is about to search for the child to destroy him. Life in jeopardy of a Savior, the promise alive. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet in Hosea out of Egypt. I called my fine child, my beautiful child, my son. Serpent crushing son. A striking in the right direction son. A shepherding son. Aren't you glad? He never sinned with his striking. He never sinned with his shepherding. He didn't have to fail forward because he didn't know any sin. But because of him, we have the opportunity to move forward despite our failures. It says that then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Sounds a lot like the time of Moses, doesn't it? According to the time that he'd been ascertained from the wise men, and this was to fulfill a dire prophecy from Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take this child, the child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And we, we know what happened with the people of Israel, right? Many, many, many rejected him same as they rejected Moses, but some accepted him. And the gospel promise came, and the church was born. And that's why we're here today. We're here today because of the same promise that's been passed down throughout the ages. That is, that the Son would come, and that the Son did come, and that in the fullness of time, the Son will come again. And that's the promise that you have and that I have, because he has made a way where there is no way for there seems to be nothing but a death trap and a coffin for you to be saved. Because from death, he rose to life. And so therefore, from your death, you will surely rise to life. Let's pray. Thank you for salvation, Jesus, as we look to you, Christ.